WNYC Studios is supported by Indeed.com. Are you hiring? With Indeed, you can post a job in minutes, set up screener questions, then zero in on your shortlist of qualified candidates using an online dashboard. Get started today at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Science Friday is supported by Sunbasket. No matter your lifestyle, Sunbasket caters to your kind of healthy. With delicious meal plans like paleo, gluten-free, Mediterranean, and vegan with quick and easy recipes, you can enjoy a dinner full of organic produce and clean ingredients in as little as 15 minutes. Go to sunbasket.com slash Friday today to get up to $60 off. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, podcasters. Ira here with some exciting news. Cephalopod Week is here. Even better, I'm giving you the chance to join the Cephaloparty by sponsoring some virtual cephalopods. Let me explain. Our talented team has built a sea of support on our website, giving each of you the chance to sponsor a virtual cephalopod for a mere $8 donation. With each gift, you will get to pick from one of eight beautifully illustrated sea creatures, which we will post to our site along with your first name and city. So just head to sciencefriday.com slash squid support to donate and join our sea of support. Again, go to sciencefriday.com slash squid support to sponsor a cephalopod and support our public radio program. And thanks. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. A little bit later in the hour, dogs. You know, they have been evolving alongside humans for thousands of years. And not only have they become friendlier and more dependent on people, they've even developed a secret weapon to manipulate us. Their puppy dog eyes. You know what I'm talking about. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But first, scientists searching for planets in other solar systems have done it again. They have found the most Earth-like exoplanet to date, according to something called the Earth Similarity Index. Here to explain why planet hunters are looking so hard at small, cool stars, plus other selected short subjects in science, is Gizmodo staff writer Ryan Mandelbaum. Always good to have you. Always great to be here, Ira. How you doing? That's, let, let's talk about this planet. How can we know it's actually Earth-like? Well, so uh, this is around Tea Garden Star. There's uh, scientists were able to find this planet in a survey. Um, it has an orbit of approximately 4.91 days. The other star is around 11.4 days. And uh, the way that you determine if it's Earth-like is if it kind of looks like Earth in, in how big it is and how much it weighs, and if it's in the part around the star where the temperature would be nice. Sounds like a duck, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Well, so is there really an Earth similarity index that passes you? have to check off all those boxes? Yeah. I mean, the Earth Similarity Index is something scientists use basically to determine how close an exoplanet is to the Earth. Um, but of course, that comes with a caveat that it doesn't take into account how the star might affect the planet's atmosphere. So just because a planet might have, you know, 70-degree mm -hmm. Fahrenheit temperatures doesn't mean that it's actually going to be a uh, habitable planet. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, this this star is small and cold. Why is that the new thing now, looking for cold ones? Well, I, if we could find an Earth-like planet, I don't think we care what star it's around, but this these red dwarf stars have just proven to be a, a host of these uh, Earth-like exoplanets. Mm -hmm. Even Proxima Centauri, our closest neighbor, seems to have an Earth-like exoplanet around it, and so uh, this is just a really 
great way to look for right. these stars and a really great sort of uh, direction to go. And just to be clear, this this exoplanet was not found by the Kepler mission, right? No, no. This is the Carmini's telescope in Spain. Okay. Let's let's go back to Earth a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> a village in Norway, this is amazing, wants to live without time. <laughs> How would that work? I've been trying to figure that out myself. <laughs> um, so... I spoke to the uh, the guy behind it, uh, Kjell Ove Fedding, and what he said in this town of Samaroy, they uh, want to get rid of clocks, and that's because they live north of the Arctic Circle, so the sun doesn't rise every day. The sun rises once a year, and it sets once a year, and uh, so he had this idea, you know, everybody's so caught up in their schedules, and we don't make time for anybody anymore, so let's just get rid of the clocks, and <laughs> um you know, maybe in the middle in the middle of the night. Why, you can go gardening at 4 a.m. there. So they thought, why don't we just do that? Uh, yeah, you know, when I was in Antarctica where it was six six months of daylight, that's what people did. Yeah. They, they were going, you know, going at 11 o'clock at night. They started headed doing doing things. <laughs> uh, but when you're in Antarctica, you're not really, you know, doing commerce or, commerce or business where you have to pay attention to the clock. How do they deal with that? Well, you know, Ira, we live in a society that relies on clocks, so it's, uh, it's it doesn't work so well. You know, he... Carl, Kel and I, when we were speaking, he said I only had 20 minutes because he had to go catch a plane. <laughs> and you can't catch a plane if you don't have a clock. But the other thing is that, you know, scientifically, we just don't. Yeah. That probably wouldn't work out so well. We were we evolved in a place with 24-hour cycles. so And we have circadian rhythm. We have, exactly. Right? And, our, you know, all sorts of things rely on the circadian rhythm. I mean, our sleep cycles, our hormonal cycles, we have body temperature, gastrointestinal tract. I mean, it is important to maintain a rhythm. But, but even so, there are people who live almost total dark, you know, in the Arctic Circle, total darkness in the winter time. How do they? How do they know what what, the, what happens to their circadian rhythm? We ought to look into that. Yeah. I think there was a there was research of a guy yeah. who lived in a cave for a long time, and he still maintained approximately, not exactly, but approximately a twenty four hour calendar. Okay, let's, schedule. Let's, let's uh, get out of the cave and look. Well, <laughs> maybe a strange skull. Get to this strange skull that is uh, finally identified. And and what is it? Oh, I love this. It's a it's a hybrid between a narwhal and a beluga. So these two Arctic cetaceans, they uh, sometime in the 80s, the hunters came across this strange animal. It had a beluga's flipper, a narwhal's tail, and they 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 killed it. They gave the skull to some scientists, and now DNA evidence has indeed revealed that the skull was a hybrid between a narwhal and a beluga. I mean, it's crazy. So, so, <laughs> so you can't have that happen. There can be a hybrid. Yeah, in, in fact, cetaceans like, like whales, they do it. They hybrid with one another, yeah. and uh, they we don't. We don't, we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that the uh, beluga was the male, the narwhal was the female, and um, the two species have been seen traveling in pods with one another. So what probably happened was a, uh, you know, a, they, they say a young male beluga probably got caught up with a big pod of narwhals, and, you know, one of the female narwhals allowed him to uh, to be the father. And and this skull has been sitting on somebody's desk or on their shelf for all decades? That's or? right. It's been in this, well, it's it's been long hypothesis to be this hybrid because if you look at it, it, it really yeah. does look like uh, beluga sort of, they have regular teeth. Narwhals have these long single tooth horns and it does have its teeth are splayed outwards like a like almost like a cross between a beluga and a narwhal but uh, the, it lived to be an adult so it clearly did fine. Is, is this is this how shall I put it, potentially bad news? So, Especially in a climate change 
brings narwhals and belugas closer together. Sure. The study yeah. authors did tell me that this is, seems to be a one-off case. We don't know. Hybrids generally could be, mad, be bad news because if the a rare species doesn't find a mate, yeah. then uh, they might produce, you know, they pick some other species and they produce unfit offspring, and that's obviously bad. Mm-hmm. Finally, San Francisco wants to make a statement about e-cigarettes. San Francisco is poised to be the first city in the United States to ban e-cigarettes, uh, or at least until the FDA will review e-cigarettes. Um, it's uh, it's an interesting situation. You might know that vaping is really popular among teens right yeah. now. I think it's one in five teens have said that they use these e-cigarettes, and uh, it's been called one of the country's biggest public health challenges. Now, uh, will this work? We don't know. I don't know. We'll watch out. You know, <laughs> as they say, as goes California, so goes the nation. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's what's interesting is that Juul, the industry-leading e-cigarette company, is actually based in San Francisco. They're uh, the, oh. own, partially owned by the tobacco giant Altria. Um, so obviously, they're not happy with this, and they're trying to fight the uh, they. But you know, <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. We'll pay attention. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me, Ira. Ryan Mandelbaum, staff writer at Gizmodo here in New York. Now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KERA for WWNO, St. Louis Public Radio, Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. And you know, when you hear the term renewable energy, you might think of what? The, the usual suspects, solar, wind, hydropower, even geothermal. But there's also one that has almost unlimited potential that we don't hear much about, and that, that's the power of ocean waves. Wave energy has a mes- an estimated efficiency of as much as 50%, but efforts to harvest it have been very slow in the U.S., now a proposed project off the coast of Oregon hopes to boost wave energy development. Here with the story is Jess Burns, producer and reporter for Oregon Public Broadcasting Science and Environment Team. She joins us from Ashland. Welcome to Science Friday. Hey, thank you. Hey, you're welcome. So what exactly is this thing OSU is, is trying to build? Yeah, so Oregon State University wants to build a wave energy testing facility. Um, this isn't a building. This is a area of the ocean about six, seven miles offshore, um, 2.5 square miles, so a big chunk. And in that, they would have uh, the ability for wave energy developers like that are developing these devices to come in and test uh, their 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 buoys and their mm-hmm. devices, all different kinds of, of configurations there. And, and the kind of important thing here is that there are going to be undersea trans- electric transmission lines that are going to connect back to shore. And so basically these wave energy developers will be able to plug up to uh, five each of these devices into a cable and then test you know, how they interact together, how much electricity they're producing, just how well hmm. they do out in the ocean environment. So they're like giving them an underwater maker space to oh, f- figure yeah, out definitely. how to do anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That is cool. So you can hook up all the cables and do all kinds of underwater uh, testing for wave energy. Uh, what kind of technologies are we talking about for harvesting wave energy? Is it like wind turbines or what, what kinds of – how do you make electricity from ocean waves? Well, you can make it through uh, wind turbines out in the ocean. Um, You can do tidal energy. This specific project is actually capturing 
the motion of the waves, using the kind of kinetic energy in the waves to um, generate electricity. Um, yeah, you know, there's all different kinds of concepts out there. This is a pretty early tech, so, um, you know, companies are just emerging with these. A couple that I've seen, um, one is kind of the one you would think about, that it would be a buoy floating on top of the water, anchored to the ocean floor, and then the up and down of the waves would um, be captured and then transmitted mm. into electricity. Another one I saw that I thought was really interesting um, was, I guess, picture like a, a large piece of spaghetti floating on top of the ocean. And it's tethered on both ends, so it's attached on both ends. And basically, as that that noodle is floating under the way, and the waves are moving it, it's moving up and down, left and right. And basically, you would convert that motion into electricity. Right, right. So just kind of noodles on top of the ocean was another one I, I just thought was um, just an interesting concept. That does sound good. Well, why is Oregon a good place to test out this technology? We got a lot of waves. <laughs> um, the wind blows. Um, there's big ocean storms. Um, you know, there's a lot of wave energy potential. I actually um, spoke with the project manager for the OSU project, Justin Clore. He told me that the coast of Oregon is actually kind of the ultimate testing ground for this kind of energy technology. When you look at the environment off the coast of Oregon, it is one of the more harsher uh, you know, wave climates in the world. And if you can get past an Oregon winter um, with the technology and prove that you can uh, not only survive, but also uh, generate, you know, electricity, that would be the ultimate goal. Uh, you know, people have objected to wind power offshore. What kind of opposition might you see with wave energy? Well, I anticipate, um, just based on other projects and marine areas off of the coast of Oregon, that the fishing industry um, is going to get involved in this. Yeah. And, um, you know, Oregon has a, has a thriving fishing industry, Dungeness crab, salmon, um, pink shrimp. Um, and so anything that, that impacts kind of where fishermen can go and where they can fish, they, they definitely um, kind of voice their concerns. Right. Um, OSU has, say, has said that they're going to allow fishing. I got, but, I'm just, I mean, I've run out of time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But we get the picture. Just Burns, science and environment reporter at Oregon Public Broadcasting. We're going to take a break and come back. We're going to talk about, uh, well, dogs. Stay with us. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you've looked down while you're eating and saw two big dog eyes longingly stare at you, I have seen this many times with my grand dogs. You know the full power of puppy dog eyes. You might have even been compelled to share a piece of your steak or your pizza. Who can say no after a dog has activated its sad eyes? My next guest is here to talk about how dogs evolved to have puppy dog eyes and why they are so important to the human dog bond. And Burroughs is a professor of anatomy at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, and she joins us via Skype. And if you have any questions about how dogs have evolved to be our animal sidekicks, our number is 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us at uh, SciFry. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you so much for having me. So you have a study about how dogs make puppy dog eyes. What did you find? What we found was that a large range of dog breeds all had this muscle around the eyebrow that lifts that eyebrow up, except for the husky. And then we found that none of the wolves that we looked at had this muscle. 
So that result with the Husky not having it was really interesting because they're considered to be an ancient breed, more closely related to the wolf than many other dog breeds. Why would they, why would they not evolve it? Why would the wolf not have it? Well, they, they probably have some very tiny representation of this muscle that I just couldn't see with my naked eye because you typically don't evolve something from nothing. Yeah. So they yeah. must have something there that just doesn't function in the same way as it does in the dog. You know, we normally think of evolution as taking thousands and thousands and thousands of years. So if we're talking about people and dogs together and the dogs evolving over time, it must have not been that long ago. Well, it seems like around 30 to 35,000 years ago, across the globe, people started domesticating these dogs. And they were probably choosing first for traits that were non-aggressive. So maybe this cute little eyebrow lift kind of came along with those non-aggressive behavioral traits, the smaller teeth, the smaller snout, and just kind of rode along with it. But it is a fast um, selective breeding evolution for sure. And so uh, so they, it, it stayed with the dogs because I guess people then bred more dogs who raised their eyebrows at them or... Sure. It, it, it seems that over selective breeding that, that people did with these dogs, that whether we were conscious of it or not, we were selecting for that really cute eyebrow lift. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of what it was like looking at my infants when they would you know, lift their little eyebrows up. It just triggers this nurturing, caregiving response when we see it. Is, is there any breed or breeds of dogs that do it more? I've mastered this more than other dogs. That's a good question, and that's what my psychology colleagues are doing now, is looking at a broader range of dog breeds. We only really looked at um, the, the, the mutts, the, the chihuahua, the toy breeds. We didn't really get a broad representation, but if the results of the husky not having this muscle are applicable to most ancient breeds, that would be hmm. really interesting to get that footage and see if they do this movement or more likely they don't do this movement. That's a great idea. I'd like to bring on another guest who is an animal behavior researcher. Sarah Elizabeth Biosier is uh, director of the Thinking Dog Center at CUNY Hunter College here in New York. She's here with me in the studio. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, thank you for having me. Just tell me what the Thinking Dog Center is. It, it's for. a it's a K9 cognition center. So we ask New York uh, City do, uh, dog owners to come in, bring in their pets, and they play our problem solving and training games, get fun certificates. Uh, it's it's pretty enriching. Now, I, so you study animal behavior. Yes. Why why do you think dogs have evolved to have these muscles? That they... Well, dogs are extremely unique in the sense that they have uh, they interact with us on a daily basis, and that's different from a lot of other animals. They live in the home with us. We take them for walks. We have this really cool and unique bond with them. And so it makes sense that they have certain uh, physiological um, features or traits or behaviors that would help them facilitate interaction with us. Let me go to the phones because we have a question that's leading up to what I would like to ask. Michael in Oakland, California. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Um, 
So if there is a special muscle required for this, maybe this is somewhat sideways, but I had heard several years ago that the fact that the young of most or all mammalian species uh, have these adorable sort of big eyes relative to the size of their faces and so forth uh, is actually itself an evolved thing so that we will pay attention and bond to them and that we have a similar reaction to animals of other species as we do to our own young because we've all evolved this same response to this same set of features in all of our young. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarah is, yeah, is nodding her head. Yes, Yes. no, exactly. Um, we have these uh, cool features that dogs and other animals have. So large eyes, large forehead. We often call them pedomorphic features, meaning that they look like infants. Um, and they're probably somehow hitching a ride or hijacking an emotional response uh, that we have already for our young. Um, but just exacerbating it with other animal species. So. Uh, yeah, and do you agree with that? I, I, I do. The eyes are just outgrowths of the brain. So mammals are classified partially by having much larger brains than reptiles. So those eyes, as Sarah said, are sort of hitchhiking along with the brain, but it really does hijack our emotions. And we, we think of that as cute. One eight 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 four four seven two four eight two five five eight four four seven two four eight two five five. You can also tweet us at Cy Fry. I have seen research in recent years about dog bonding with humans, and that and how important the eyes are for you to make eye contact. With, with, a, with a dog, Sarah. Yeah, so we have these um, cool studies that have been done on uh, oxytocin, this love hormone. Um, and it seems to be, at least with dogs, that we have some evidence that when you mutually gaze at your dog, so you're looking into their eyes, that your oxytocin increases. And we also have some evidence that suggests that the oxytocin levels in the dogs are also increasing. Whether or not this is a causal relationship or how this all works, we still have to figure out. But we do have this positive love feeling that we get from uh, looking into the eyes of our dogs, and it seems like our dogs do too. Uh, uh, there's another question about that, Sarah, that uh, the dog uses its eyes not just to sort of beg for food, uh, the scraps at the table, but when it wants to ask you something, right? Take me for a walk, let me outside. It has learned how to do that also. Yes, it seems to be. I mean, I have my dog, and he certainly uses his eyes to communicate with me in a variety of different ways. And so maybe because we are such a visual species, the dogs have, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense, evolved these features or traits to uh, hack into that. And what would you like to know more? What are you studying more about uh, this trait in dogs? Well, uh, what my lab is doing now is looking at the microanatomy of the musculature in the dogs and wolves to see exactly how it functions, uh, whether they can hold their facial contractions longer than wolves or vice versa. So that's specifically what my lab is doing now. But I wanted to mention that some years ago, we did this same study on horses and found that horses make this movement too. So we are wondering if this movement is just part of domestication in general, whether we select uh, an, uh, a series of eye movements that we interpret as being cute when we domesticate mammals in general. So those are two different pathways that we're aiming for right now. So is, is it more the eyebrow that the, the dog is doing than movement of the eye, sort of the forehead of the dog? Right. 
they're moving that if you look in the mirror and make a worried face you can see the inner part of your eyebrow go up that's where we're finding this muscle and this movement in the dog so it, it it's not the entire eye changing shape but just this portion of the eyebrow but when you look in a dog's eyeball it has typically a bigger white area to the eye than many other mammals and that may help increase the color contrast to the eye and make you focus on the eye more, just like a person's eye. Mm. Sarah Elizabeth, you agree with that? Yes, for sure, definitely. Yeah. It would be very interesting to see what other uh, dog kind of canid species, like dingoes, for example, a rewilded dog, how, how their eye morphology or eyebrow morph morphology maps on. You know, with, with dogs, you see them, they follow you with their eyes, they make, they, they make sure to make eye contact. Um, I understand that wolves don't make eye contact specifically. Is, is, is that one of the differences, Anne? We did find when we took the video footage of wolves and domestic dogs that wolves not only didn't make this eye movement, they were hesitant. They, they just didn't make eye contact with the humans mm. doing the work in general. You know, we humans, we use our eyebrows, I think, without even thinking about it. You know, when somebody says something weird, we raise our eyebrows or when we're laughing, we do that. Uh, I, I guess that's why maybe subconsciously we're we're aware of when the dog does that. What do you, what do you think, Sarah? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's it's extremely interesting, uh, and you might it, it might be the case that, for example, this is a feature that comes about from looking at us. So maybe by having to look up higher to look at a human, these muscles start to kind of come about, and and then there are other features that link to this. For example, hacking onto these pathways. Hmm. Could dogs have chosen us for our eyebrows? Potentially, I don't know. We can do some science. Yeah, that's an interesting, you know, an idea. What do you think, Anne? Could they be have chosen us because we reflect their own eyebrows? I think that would be a really interesting experiment because clearly dogs and humans have co-evolved. They have influenced our social behavior as well. Hmm, let's see if we can go to the phones because, you know, a lot of dog people are phoning in. Kate in uh, Langdon, New Hampshire. Hi, Kate. Hi. Um, I'm really interested in this show because I've had huskies for 45 years, and one of the things I really like about them is that they're, they're really independent, but um, they're very hard to train because they don't care about approval. Huh. You know, they don't care if you tell them they're a good dog or, <clears throat> you know, and they don't want affection. They're not particularly wanting of affection. So the whole um, idea that they don't have the, the eyebrow raise is really interesting in terms of that. So you're, so you're saying your huskies never look at you with their eyebrows and you know, give that dog I don't, face? I don't see that. In, they do look at me, and especially when they get older and they're more food-motivated, they, you know, they want food and they look at me for food. But because I've only had huskies, I'm not really sure what the eyebrow raise is, you know. <laughs> um, but, um, but I think it goes along with the fact that they don't, they're not particularly driven by affection or approval or, you know, um, even food until they get older. Right. They, you know, they don't, you can't, you can't bribe them with anything. That's interesting. That's it. Let me ask, uh, thanks for calling, Kate. What do you think of that? I can second that. I have a husky mix, and you cannot make her feel bad about anything, and she does not like to be held. So she doesn't put her 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 head in your lap and raise its eyebrow and 
do all those things the other cute dogs do? Not very often. Um, Sarah? That's interesting. It also maps on uh, a little bit with some of the oxytocin research that we've been seeing that uh, owners that report that they have a stronger bond or relationship Mm -hmm. with their dog also seem to have a greater magnitude increase of this oxytocin. Um, So potentially this is something that might happen, and maybe it is breed-specific. I'm Ira Flato. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. Talking about uh, dogs and their reaction to humans and how they use those eyebrows. Here's, a, here's an interesting tweet from Kip who says, with regards to dog eyebrows, do dogs use this with other dogs? Or is it expression only to get human attention? Wow. Have you seen, Annie, have you ever seen dogs do it with other dogs? That's one of our uh, step two research agendas is to film dogs interacting with one another. Anecdotally, I watch dogs very carefully in dog parks when I'm out there, and I've never seen a dog do this to another dog. I have seen dogs turn and look at their humans and do it, but never dog on dog. That's not proof, but it's anecdotal. Sarah, you're agreeing. Yeah. um, Vision is different in dogs. So potentially there are different ways that they see the world. Their acuity is less um, uh, refined than ours. So for something as minute as a little detail in the eyebrows to increase the white around the eyes, it, it may be more likely that it's co-evolved with, with humans or for human use rather than for uh, interacting with other dogs. But they could still potentially still mm-hmm. use it. You also study dog bowing. I do. What, what is dog bowing? What, is, what does that tell us about how they have evolved? Uh, dog play bows are uh, this position. You've probably seen it at home if you have a dog. The forearms go down, the back is curved, the butt goes up, and the tail starts wagging. And this tells us a little bit about how dogs play or mediate their social interactions, at least with other dogs. There is some research with humans, but uh, I focus on dog-dog interactions. Oh, you mean this is what they dogs do to other dogs? Instead of the eyebrows, they do the bowing? They do the bow. Huh. That's interesting, Anne. Have you heard about that? I I have heard of that, um, and that makes perfect sense, the explanation about the small face movement. Hmm. Let's see if I can get one more call before we have to go. Let's go to Tyler in Stockton, California. Hi, Tyler. Hi. um, I had heard through either another podcast or another source that one reason that wolves have more upright ears than dogs is due to domestication causing a lowering of testosterone. And the earlier caller was referring to her huskies, which I know have more upright ears, not necessarily making eye contact, and that that might somehow be related. Hmm. In terms of the, the hormones, I'm not so familiar with that, but there are these really cool experiments happening in Siberian foxes uh, where we've seen that even over a short period of time when you select for um, uh, affectionate behaviors that you see morphological changes. You get floppy ears like you do in dogs. You get curly tails. You get color changes. So by selecting for certain behavioral traits, we are seeing that there are anatomical changes that are associated with that. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, anything else that you would like to know in your further studies, Sarah? Uh, I'd be interested to see uh, if uh, Anne has anything more to say in the future about feral dogs as well. Do they have mm. these eyebrows? Ah. How do they communicate with uh, humans? Do you think they still need it? 
that's a good idea. I mean, we we've we've reached out and gotten some coyotes and foxes, but not feral dogs. That's a really interesting question well, well, that I would like to put on my list. And you'll come back and tell us because we'd like to know, and oh, we and we've run out of time. Sarah, okay. Sarah Elizabeth Biosier is director of the Thinking Dog Center, and she's adjunct professor at CUNY. Hunter College here in New York. Thank you. That's very fascinating stuff that you're doing. And also Ann, Bow, uh, Ann Burroughs, uh, Professor of Anatomy, Department of Physical Therapy at the Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, we will love to have you all back. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, well, uh, it's we're going to talk about microbes, a lot of stuff that make up most of our planet. So stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Despite what you may have been told, this really isn't our planet. All the plants and animals on Earth are relatively new additions. The planet really belongs to the microbes. There are more microbes on Earth than anything else. But despite living basically everywhere and playing a role in many of the processes that affect the climate, the connection between microbes and the climate isn't talked about that much. And that, my next guest says, needs to change. David Mark Welch is director at the Division of Research at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, and he's one of the co-authors of a consensus statement about the importance of microbes in the climate equation. It was published this week in the journal Nature Reviews Microbiology. He joins me from WCAI in Woods Hole. Welcome to Science Friday. Thank you, Ira. So you have people signing on to this consensus document. Why do we need this sort of warning statement? Well, as you said in your intro, we really have not appreciated the role that microbes play in the world, and particularly the role that microbes are going to be playing with a changing climate. Uh, so we need to become more aware of that, both on the level of policymakers, scientists, and just individuals. So, so make me a little bit more aware right now. Let's talk about some of the ways first. How, how do microbes affect the climate? Sure. Well, you know, as you, as you said, there are a tremendous number of microbes in the world. About 90% of all of the weight, the mass of everything in the ocean um, are microbes. Uh, microbes are everywhere and they're carrying out all of the major sort of bio biophysical processes that create the atmosphere. Uh, essentially, all of the oxygen that we are able to breathe is here because of microbes originally. Um, microbes both release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and they absorb carbon dioxide. Microbes are responsible for absorbing about 50% of all of the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. They create methane and they eat methane. They create nitrous oxide and they eat nitrous oxide. Those are both additional uh, harmful greenhouse gases in addition to carbon dioxide. So microbes are playing a critical role in determining what the climate is like. And as we force the climate into new directions, those microbes are going to react to that forcing. And we really don't have any idea what they're going to do. Huh. So, so when we talk about methane, cows producing methane, or rice paddies making greenhouse gases, it's not those objects that are doing it. It's the microbes that live with them. That are doing exactly, it. and that's part of why we need to have you know greater understanding at the at the individual and policy level of what's going on there. We talk about you know cows producing methane. As you say, cows don't produce the methane. It's microbes inside the cows that are producing the methane, and there may be ways, uh, therefore, of altering the amount of methane that 
that those communities produce. The same with nitrous oxide and methane mm-hmm. that are both produced in, in rice paddies and other sorts of agricultural areas. There may be ways that we can modify what the microbes are doing in order to uh, mitigate the changes of climate. Are we talking change. about breeding or modifying microbes that would suck in more CO2 than give off uh, greenhouse gases? It wouldn't even necessarily need to be uh, breeding individual microbes. And this is one of the uh, the things that I hope comes through in the article is we're not so much talking about individual microbes as microbial communities. So if you pick up a little bit of soil or a little bit of seawater, there are millions of microbes in that that drop of seawater. But more importantly, there are many, many different species of microbes, and they're all interacting in different ways. So there are microbes, these microbes that produce nitrous oxide and other microbes that eat nitrous oxide. Can we, you know, help the, uh, the microorganisms that are eating the nitrous oxide? Can we help the ones that are eating the methane to shift that balance in a more beneficial direction? Tell us exactly what this uh, consensus document is calling for. It's primarily calling for a greater awareness of microbes uh, in the environment, the role that they play in changing the climate, and the role that climate change will play in changing those microbial populations. It's really written at a a Scientific American sort of level. Uh, It is an open access article, and I would encourage people to you know, download it and take a look at it. There are call-out boxes that define certain terms that people might not be familiar with, uh, just in an attempt to ed- educate themselves about microbes in the environment. You know, we, we, we love to talk about the microbiome here, and we usually focus on our bodies, mm-hmm. but you're saying there's, there are so many different microbiomes living in the soil, living in the ocean, living in our bodies that we don't get enough, we don't talk about enough. Exactly, exactly. I think that, you know, we have learned, and certainly your show has has uh, brought this up many times, about the importance of microbes uh, in the human microbiome. But I think we still make the mistake of thinking that there are, you know, there are a few bacteria out there, and most of them are bad. That's why we wash our hands and clean our surfaces. If we clean the surfaces, we'll get rid of the microbes. Now we think there are some good microbes, and we worry about the balance of good and bad in our own stomach. That same sort of dynamic is happening all over the planet. There are these complex microbial communities, and small changes to those communities can end up having very large effects on things like the production of methane, carbon dioxide, or nitrous oxide. Yeah, because we have all been taught that you know, microbes, they're all bad, bad things, but some of them are very useful to us. I, really, most of them. I mean, there are a small number of disease-causing uh, bacteria and viruses, um, and a tremendously huge number, probably millions of different species of bacteria alone, and that's not including all the other sorts of microbes, the archaea, the protists, small fungi. So where do you go with the, with this document? What's going to happen to it? Uh, how many signers are you looking for? Well, this is one of a number of uh, papers that will be coming around, uh, coming out around this uh, scientist warning to humanity concept of pointing out the different sorts of, of changes that will be coming about because of climate change and the things that we need to do to address them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope that this leads to a, a greater appreciation of microbes in the environment, both on the part of policymakers, scientists, uh, and individuals. Mm-hmm. I'd like to thank you for taking time to be with us today, David. Sure. Thank you very much, Ira. This is a fantastic show you do. Thank you very much. Very important work. Thank you. David Mark Welch is director of the Division of Research at the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole and uh, talking about this very interesting paper he's put out. 
The summer solstice is upon us. The kids are done with school. But what makes the third week in June most notable for us? It's time for the Mighty Mollusks to take over Science Friday. That's right. It's the kickoff to Cephalopod Week. And I know what you're thinking. What more is there to know? Well, this whole week, we'll be, we'll be filling it with cephalopod surprises. And here to tell us about all of the fun is Science Friday's digital producer, Lauren Young, our number one cephalopod aficionado. Welcome to Science Friday, Back. Hey, Ira. Happy cephalopod week. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and and uh, Diana Lee, a biologist and science communicator at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station in Monterey, California. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, it's great to be back, Ira. Nice to have you back. Lauren, we've been celebrating the cephalopod. Well, I can't believe it. It's six, yeah, six years now. Uh, okay, for the newbies among us, give us a rundown of what Cephalopod Week is. Absolutely. So Cephalopod Week is our annual eight-day celebration of my favorite group of ocean creatures, including the squid, the cuttlefish, octopus, chambered nautilus, and all, uh, so many more. Um, during Cephalopod Week, we all come together and share our love for these incredible invertebrates, invertebrates and geek out about them. So we at Science Friday have a bunch of things to do for uh, for you. We've got a bunch of upcoming stories and videos, activities that you can participate in. We actually already have a new video up right now about the fascinating brain of the octopus and how they move those nimble arms of theirs. And so I didn't know this, but each of those eight arms can actually smell and taste. No, isn't that no, bizarre? That is. It's crazy. These Researchers are studying how the octopus processes the information with 3D cameras and by letting them play with Legos. It's so much fun. Um, you can check out uh, the video and watch them wrangle with uh, Legos at sciencefriday.com slash cephalopod. Yeah, I, I watched that already, them splashing around in the tank with Legos. No, it's I so wonder great. if they have a favorite. I, and we want people to participate, right? We're putting out an open call to our listeners this year. Yes. So um, it's really going to be a cephalo party. So please join in um, on all the festivities that are hashtag at hashtag cephalopod week. And this year we're doing something else. Um, if you can record a voice memo telling us what is your favorite cephalopod and why, it's really easy to do. All you need is um, any voice recording app on your smart device and just uh, record that and email it to voices at sciencefriday.com. Or you can leave us a message at five. Five six seven two four three two four five six. Um, you can just leave us a message there, and we want your best argument for your favorite cephalopod. And at the end of the week, we'll do a fun little uh, montage so everyone can listen and decide. All right, as long as you're asking everybody for their favorite cephalopod, yes. I, well, it's only fair <laughs> that I ask what your favorite cephalopod. Sure. So it ebbs and flows with my mood a little bit, but right now <laughs> I am obsessed with something I saw on our Cephalopod Week Facebook group, the Blanket Octopus. Uh, so the females are really big and absolutely gorgeous, but you don't really want to mess with them because they can pluck out the venomous tentacles of the Portuguese man of war and they use them like weapons. And when the female blanket octopus is alarmed, they'll stretch out their arms and unfurl this kind of gauzy cape of uh, webbing behind them, casting a shadow over their predators. Uh, so to me, they're kind of like the ultimate superheroes of the cephalopod world, soaring through the ocean. It's pretty great. And it's great. Okay, Diana Lee, let me get you to respond to that question. What is your favorite cephalopod? I know you oh study squid, goodness. right? Mm -hmm. Yes. I'm a very squid-centric person right now. And there are so many squids to choose from. Uh, 
I always love to bring up the big fin squid or the long arm squid. It's one of those weird deep sea creatures and it can be in total length up to like eight meters long. And what makes it so cool is that it has these huge, huge fins on one side of its body, just undulating so calmly and so gracefully. But then as you keep looking down this animal as it extends into the deep ocean on our earth, it has these arms that kind of have this like elbowy looking hinge and and then just like meters of arms dangling hanging waiting to maybe ensnare something unsuspecting and just to think about like we see people and other mammals on land every day but don't forget that there are these incredible weird mysterious creatures uh, on our own planet that look so alien and we could celebrate them this whole week and just get really excited so it's got to be that big fin squid for me i'm ira plato this is science friday from WNYC Studios talking about the kickoff of Cephalopod Week. And, and uh, I want to ask you, Dana, you just got your, your Ph.D. degree and you're, you're an official squidologist now? Pretty much. I wish I could talk to them and have them talk to me, but this is the second best thing. <laughs> and um, you study squid locomotion. You had a study out of how squid make a speedy getaway in cold water. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so I have a new study out uh, in the Journal of Experimental Biology with the cover photos. I have, you know, my cover squid, cover girls on this cover. And basically, this is about the California market squid, although they sound a little more common, less extreme than that big fin squid I just talked about. uh, They in themselves are no less fascinating. And uh, you might recognize them from your dinner plate, Uh, calamari, fried calamari, that's probably them. But they in cold water, not only in cold water, but when that cold water has really, really low oxygen, a lot of them can tolerate that and still make those getaways, even though they're a little less speedy and a little less big, they can still make those big escapes. And that's that oxygen at 5% saturation, which is about six times lower than the top of Mount Everest. So that's super impressive, really extreme. And not only do they tolerate that, they can recover once more oxygen becomes available. So they live in this dynamic Monterey Bay habitat off of California. And they are exposed to all sorts of oxygen levels, and they are super adapted to dealing with that stress in a way that I just think is mind-blowing. Yeah, I can see that. And, and Lauren, if uh, you want to hear more about Diana's research and lots of other Ceph's scientists, we have some <laughs> in-person events, right? Yeah, Diana is actually going to be part of our Cephalopod movie night in Sacramento tonight. I hear she's got actually some fun uh, squid balloon racing games, which sounds pretty fun. Yes, um, mm-hmm. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very jealous. Um, And we have a bunch of other movie nights throughout the week um, in 10 different locations, including San Antonio, Seattle, Los Angeles. So we'll be screening those brand new uh, cephalopod films and chatting with scientists on stage, uh, going on squiddy scavenger hunts and things, and adventuring after hours in aquariums. It's going to be a lot of fun. So make sure you get your tickets at sciencefriday.com slash cephalopod week. And we're also doing something else this year that's really special, Ira. I don't know if you remember that Science Friday video uh, that 
inspired cephalopod week, whereas the octopus. Still my favorite. Yeah, it's still so my great. favorite. Well, uh, the scientist Roger Hanlon, who captured the vir- that viral video of the octopus camouflaging in and out of the seabed, is going to be a part of our Reddit AMA with a panel of other cephalopod researchers. So that'll be on Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern on the Ask Science subreddit. So you can ask all your burning cephalopod questions then. Mm-hmm. And remind us where we can learn all about this. Yes. Yeah, so check everything out at sciencefriday.com slash cephalopod week. We'll be posting things there. And also, of course, chime in on our hashtag, hashtag cephalopod week. Uh, one last question for you, Diana. What got you so interested in st- studying squid? Well, I believe some of my friends listening have heard me say this so many times, but at the risk of boring them on national radio, I will say it again. So I didn't grow up with a lot of going out into nature. Uh, that wasn't quite my childhood. But what happened was in high school, in 11th grade, I went to a Shins concert, <laughs> and the merch they were selling included this T-shirt on which they had drawn this squid. And I just thought it looked so cool, so strange not anything I really thought about before. I wondered, why do squids look like that? Uh, how can they live in the ocean where obviously like humans don't live there? And I just had this kind of, you know, squiddy mm. light bulb moment in my head that then through college, I took biology classes and realized, yo, people can get paid to study squids and just learn about them and share exciting news about them. So that led me on this path of doing research and going to grad school and getting a PhD in the topic. So you never know what things are going to lead you to in your life. Mm-hmm. One last quick question. So you're, you're not squeamish about eating calamari then? I mean, it's okay. No. No. <laughs> I definitely have my favorite recipes, and I you love— You have to share them. <laughs> well— I'm not the best at making them, but when people make it really well, uh, I can appreciate them as the eater. And I think one of the coolest things about when I talk to people about squid is I get to hear about people's family recipes and how they make squids. And it just kind of brings it full circle for me and so many ways to appreciate the animal. We've come full circle. And to talk about the events, again, you can get tickets at sciencefriday.com slash cephalopod week. I want to thank both my guests, Diana Lee, biologist at Stanford University's Hopkins Marine Station and Lauren Young, our number one cephalopod aficionado. Thanks, Ira. She's our digital producer. That's about all the time we have today. Uh, we had technical engineering help today from Rich Kim, Sarah Fishman, and Kevin Wolf. We're active all week on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all those different places. And again, last time, if you want to know how to get your tickets for our big event, Cephalopod Week, sciencefriday.com slash Cephalopod Week up there on our website. All kinds of fun stuff. And make sure you check out, if you haven't seen it for the 10th time, where's the octopus on our website? Have a happy summer solstice and uh, show your stripes day, too. I'm Ira Flato in New York. Science Friday is supported by IBM. Technology is becoming more open, data more accessible, and the world more innovative. IBM is combining their industry expertise with the open source leadership of Red Hat to bring you more freedom, more security, more flexibility. Let's unlock the world's potential. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com slash redhat.